Welcome to Third Man Walking. Today I'll be discussing tournaments yet again, probably for the last time in a while, not only because I'm not planning on playing that many tournaments in the very near future, but because I feel like this is a topic I've discussed quite a bit in the last seven or eight episodes of the podcast. So one more podcast about tournaments, and then we're going to put this topic to bed for a while. Before we get to all that, though, a quick announcement, which is that pending some crossing of eyes within the next couple weeks or maybe a month, Third Man Walking is going to become affiliated with Crush Life Poker, which is very exciting for me for a number of reasons that I will discuss in detail once the move becomes uh, official. The podcast will still be free, and uh, Bart Hansen, the owner of Crush Life Poker, is hopeful that we're able to organize the transition in such a way that if you're currently subscribed to Third Man Walking via any of the standard podcast services, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever, that you will stay subscribed. But there is, as I understand it, some possibility that won't be the case. So if it turns out that uh, you need to click another button or something like that, I will make sure you're aware of it, probably by posting some tiny mini episode here before the transition takes place. So yeah, that should be happening pretty soon. The podcast may also publish on a different day, perhaps on Saturdays, but I will get all those details ironed out shortly. Okay, so with that out of the way, enjoy the new episode, which is about a recent tournament series I played at Commerce. It's February 17th, and today I'd like to review a tournament hand. I may not use this segment. I'm not really sure. I worry a little bit that I'm repeating some of the things I always say about tournaments. But the same thing keeps happening, and it makes me feel a little bit crazy. So maybe I also won't use this segment for that reason. But I do think it'll be therapeutic to commit it to posterity. So I played an $1,100 event at Commerce today. And as loyal listeners will know, I don't play a lot of tournaments. I've probably averaged about 10 a year over the past four or five years. And so the fact that I've come up empty in most of those is not necessarily meaningful. It's not a lot of buy-ins. There's a ton of variance in tournaments. And... It's not a big deal. I'll say this though, it's it's been a long time and when there's a streak in something that is a small part of your life even for, for this long of a time, you start to ask yourself questions and consider the possibility that you aren't actually very good at this format. I, I fully acknowledge that that might be the case because I don't study tournaments very much. I play them pretty infrequently. I play cash games almost every day and cash games are how I make money to buy food. So when I'm studying, I'm mostly studying cash game concepts. A lot of those should carry over to tournaments, but not all of them do. And there are pretty significant differences between the player pools as well in live cash games versus live tournaments. So, I mean, I think the obvious way to, you know, resolve my 
questions about my game would be to put in a, you know, some number of hundreds of hours of, of studying and to play a bunch online. But there are real costs to that because I can make money playing cash games using that time. So when I do play tournaments, it's mostly buy-ins in the $1,000 to $2,000 type range. If it's much smaller than that, I, I'm, I just know the dollars per hour is not really there for me. So I'm, I'm mostly just focused on these $1,000 to $2,000 type events. I, I find that the quality of these events seems quite good to me. It does seem like there's money for me to be made in those events. And, and you know, when I say $2,000 events, a lot of those have been in a couple of LA casinos have these quantum events where you can buy into day two. So if you look at my Hendon, I, a couple of the, the very few recent caches I have are for like $600 in what's listed as a $300 event. But I actually bought in for $2,000 because you can just buy into day two for a higher price point than, than buying in on day one. And when you add up, you know, 10 times a year, 12 times a year, $1,000 here, $2,000 there, it really does accumulate to an amount of money that I care about. So it is frustrating to me that, that things have not really worked out. But I keep trying because, as I've mentioned before, I mean, there's not many ways that I'm going to be able to get, you know, hit a six-figure score in two or three days. But with tournaments, you can, and it happens. I mean, I've seen so many people who are basically peers of mine at this point who've had those kinds of scores, and I have not. And... I'd love to have one. So when I see a good high value situation, hopefully here in Los Angeles, I'll take it. So I'm playing one of those today. And the hand I want to talk about, I think it's an interesting hand from a poker perspective, but it also raises some interesting questions about what exactly I'm trying to do in the tournament and what I'm trying to do with my time. So in this hand, the big blind is 800, so we're playing 400, 800, 800, and I'm under the gun one with King Queen of Diamonds. I race to 1800, the hijack calls, and the big blind calls. So now there's 6600 in the pot, and the flop comes King 96 Rainbow with the Six of Diamonds. So again, I have King Queen of Diamonds for top pair and some backdoor draws. So the big blind checks. I bet 2,000, a little less than a third of the pot here, three ways. And the hijack raises to 5,800. The big blind folds, now it's back on me, and I make the call, which I think is pretty standard at this point. I am, however, a little bit wary of this raise already on a board this dry. So now there's 18,200 in the pot, and the turn is the jack of diamonds. So now I have flush and straight draws to go with my top pair. So king, queen of diamonds on king, nine, six, jack with the six and jack of diamonds. So a lot of things going on here for me, but I check it over and now my opponent quickly bets 30,000, leaving himself about 3,000 behind. So this is basically an overbet jam of about 33,000 into about 18,000. And so basically he's gone all in. So if I'm going to continue in the hand, I'm going to be putting 33,000 in the pot. And if I lose the hand, I'm going to have about 5,000 left. We're about to go to break. Registration's about to close. 
And when we come back, the big blind will be a thousand. So we'll run through my options here. Option one is to fold. And if I fold, I'll be left with about 38,000 in chips. So 38 big blinds. If I call and lose, then I'm going to have about 5,000, about five big blinds, basically nothing. And if I call and win the hand, then I'm going to have about 89,000. So 89 big blinds. Now, I talked to a bunch of my friends about this, um, people who have some record of tournament success, and everyone says I should fold, or at least that was everybody's first response. And I've turned this hand around in my head a bunch, and I just am not sure they're correct about this. So let's think about this purely in terms of whether I win chips or not. Now, that's not the only factor in this hand at all, even though we're nowhere near the money. But let's start with that. So I have to put in 33,000 to win a pot of about 84,000. So I need about 39% equity to start making chips in this hand. If I can get beyond that, then I'm making chips here. Now, I have no particular reason to think my opponent is bluffing, especially with the speed with which he bet. Feels like he likes his hand. It is, however, LA, and he is unknown, so I don't think I can rule out the possibility that there's some kind of draw going on here, something like 8-7 of diamonds or 10-8 of diamonds or something like that, or that he's just doing something weird with, say, a hand like King-10 for no reason. I wouldn't guess that the player pool is doing those things that often, but it is LA, it does happen, and I think I have to weigh that in. So I'm looking on my computer screen here at the program Equilab, which allows us to calculate our equity in a hand against a range of hands that our opponent might have. And if I give my opponent all combinations of pocket nines, all combinations of pocket sixes, all the king nine suited, all the king six suited, and all the nine six suited, basically all the hands that he can reasonably have that are ahead of me right now, I'm sure he doesn't have pocket kings because he didn't three bet and because I have a king. Just against those hands, we're already into the mid 30 percentile in equity. And if we start to add in a few of these bluffs, if we just add in 8-7 of diamonds, 10-8 of diamonds, that gets us to pretty much where we need to be. We have about 39% equity. Now, how accurate is that? I don't really know. Uh, but we're assuming that he's not bluffing very much at all here. And we're still pretty close to the equity we need to start making chips in this hand. So I think this is actually pretty close. I don't think I'm likely to be ahead, but because I've got so much going on in this hand, I've got top pair, I've got a flush draw, I've got a straight draw, I'm just going to have enough equity to call off here, depending on how I weight other factors. Now, this is where I think I should think about what I want out of this tournament. Now, I'm not near the bubble or near the final table. So then I think, okay, can I do stuff with 89 big blinds that I cannot do with 38? And the answer is yes, because I'm a cash game player. I'm going to be much deeper stacked. If I have 89 big blinds, I'll be able to tangle with other big stacks that don't play as well as I do and potentially make myself into a real player in this tournament. So there's a lot of value in 
accumulating these extra chips, I think. I also think that if I continue in the hand and lose, that's actually not the worst thing in the world because there's an opportunity cost of playing tournaments. If I'm playing in the tournament, if I fold here and then I'm in the tournament for three more hours, that's three hours that I'm not going to be playing cash games. And I know that I make a certain number of dollars per hour in cash games and they're right down the hall. So if this is close in terms of making chips versus losing chips, or even if it is slightly losing chips to gamble here, it's probably a good decision for me overall to just go ahead and take it and either run up a bigger stack or be out or almost out of the tournament and just go back to playing cash games where again, I know I'm making money and that's a weird sort of calculation to make because it's not great from like a pure poker perspective. And one thing that my friend Jamie said, which I, I really respected was that when he's in a tournament, he's committing to playing as well as he can the entire time. And if he has to win a war of attrition, so be it. And I respect that commitment to fight it out for as long as it's going to take. And if I had backers for this tournament, that is absolutely what I would do because I would owe that to them. But I don't think from a dollars per hour perspective, it's necessarily going to be good to pass on spots like these and hope that you can run it up with 38 big blinds, even though 38 big blinds is a totally reasonable stack to have in a tournament if there's money to be made elsewhere. So anyway, I did decide to go ahead and gamble here. And again, all my friends thought that this was not the best decision, but I think it's a fine decision for me and for what I needed to do. Needless to say, I did not win the hand. My opponent had king nine offsuit, actually. I would not have thought that king nine offsuit was in his range preflop, but learn something new every day. It doesn't ultimately change the, the equity versus range calculation that I discussed earlier because with king queen of diamonds on this board against king nine offsuit, I still have almost exactly 39% equity. I'm right where I need to be in terms of, of making chips versus losing them. But the river was a brick and I ended up down to five big blinds and lost the rest of it two hands later. So another shot at a tournament doesn't work out. Hopefully the next one will. I'm going to fire on Saturday and maybe that will finally be my time. It is Saturday, February 19th, and since I mentioned in the last segment that I would be playing this same $1,100 tournament again, I thought I would update you on how the second bullet went. Cash games were pretty good in the morning, so I played for about three hours and then registered the tournament about two hours late and came in in time for the 300-500 level. Not much happened in the first half hour or so. I don't think I won a hand. And I was down to about 26,000 by the time the next level rolled around in which we're playing 300, 600, 600. So in this first significant hand, a recreational player opens to 1400 in middle position. Another recreational player calls in the cutoff. And I have king 10 of hearts on the button. 
So I think I have a few too many big blinds to just ship in here. And I don't really have enough big blinds that three betting without going all in becomes appetizing. I also think this hand is too good to fold. So by process of elimination, I choose call here on the button with King 10 of hearts. The blinds fold. So we're headed to a flop three ways, 5,700 in the middle, and it comes queen, nine, seven with the queen and nine of hearts. So I have a gutter to a straight flush here with my king, 10 of hearts. The preflop raiser checks, the cutoff bets 3,000, about half the pot. And again, I'm in a spot like I was preflop where I have probably a little bit too much in my stack to just go all in, but not enough to raise to a non all in sizing. So again, by process of elimination, I just make the call and the preflop raiser folds. So now 11,700 in the middle and the turn comes in offsuit 10. So now queen, nine, seven, 10 with queen and nine of hearts and I have king, 10 of hearts. My opponent now bets 2000, which is interesting. He's betting less than one fifth of the pot. And I think if I hadn't picked up a 10 here, I would probably just go all in. This is not an especially strong looking bet. But now that I have the pair of tens, there's less incentive to bluff. It's possible I'm good right now with just this pair of tens and I'm getting an incredible price. So again, I just make the call. So now there's 15,700 in the middle and the river comes in offsuit king. So now queen, nine, seven, 10, king. I've backed into two pair here with kings and tens. Hearts have missed and now any jack makes a straight. My opponent now bets 4,000. So about a quarter of the pot. And I think against a bigger sizing, I would probably lean towards folding here, but I just don't think I can for this particular sizing. I mean, for one, there's the possibility that he could be block betting with some kind of two pair hand that I actually beat. And for another thing, I'm just getting an amazing price at this point with a pretty strong hand, 4,000 to win 23,700. So with my two pair, I make the call and my opponent shows Jack seven of hearts. So he does make the straight kind of a perfect storm for me. He flops bottom pair and a worse flush draw than mine. Then on the turn, I don't shove against his very small bet because I pick up the pair of tens and then he gets there on the river. And once these two hands decide to go to a flop, I just don't see any scenario where I don't lose a significant percentage of my chips. So I'm down to a little bit more than half my starting stack at this point. I win a couple of very small hands over the next half hour or so. And then we're in the 800 level when this next hand comes up. So this time under the gun raises to 2000. And again, the blinds are 400, 800. I have 19,100 next to act and pick up ace king of diamonds and make an easy all in jam here for about 24 big blinds. It folds around to the cutoff who tanks and then makes the call and the original razor folds. So I'm all in against what turns out to be ace queen of clubs. Pretty good spot here. The board runs out four, three deuce, then an eight on the turn and then a queen on the river. So the river gets me and I'm out of the tournament within an hour and 15 minutes or so. My frustrating run in tournaments continues and I head back to the cash games. I do have a ticket for an $1,100 satellite to the $10,000 main event. And I will play that satellite either tomorrow or Monday. So there will be some more tournament action for me here in the coming week. But given how things have gone this week and in the past three years or so, 
I'm not too eager to get back to the tournament table. The coda to this story is that I played that $1,100 satellite to the $10,000 main event, and I actually did run decently and build a stack. And this is what I did with it. So a couple hours into the satellite, I have about 90,000 in chips, and the big blind is 1,500. The low jack, a recreational player opening way too often, min raises. And I call from the big blind with jack eight offsuit with no heart. So there's 8,500 in the pot heading to the flop, and it comes queen, 10, five, rainbow. I check with my jack eight offsuit. He bets 2,500, and I raise to 9,000 with my gut shot, which I think is a good play. He calls. There's 26,500 in the pot heading to the turn, which comes the ace of hearts, creating a backdoor heart draw. So now queen, 10, five, ace with two hearts, and I have jack eight without a heart. My opponent has about 31,000 back, which is a workable stack at this point in the tournament. And I know from watching him play that he'll get to this turn with a lot of weak hands in his range, and also that he's unusually capable of hero folding. And of course, with the ace on the turn, I pick up more straight outs, now being able to hit a nine or a king to make a straight. So I go for it bluffing all in for his last 31,000 into a pot of 26,000. Now, I think there's a case for this play, especially with the specific read I have on this opponent. It is, however, not a good play in theory. My opponent has a lot of weak hands that will fold, but he has lots of strong ones too. King Jack is now the nuts, and it doesn't make much sense for me to have raised King Jack on the flop at the stack depths because it's such a disaster when he raises again. My opponent doesn't necessarily know I'm unlikely to have King Jack, of course, but I still don't like sticking my neck out this far, representing a hand that I might not even have all that often, especially when I can't really have the second or third nuts either, since I would have three bet aces or queens pre-flop. The fact that there are so many strong hands I can't really have suggests I shouldn't bet all that frequently with my range on this turn. But again, I do know that my opponent has a fold button, because I've watched him hem and haw on a couple of rivers now. And I do pick up equity on this turn, and if my opponent had one pair on the flop and didn't improve on the turn, he's probably going to fold. So is that enough to make this play defensible? I lean toward no, but I'm not really sure. And that bothers me, especially because now, it's hard for me to even completely unpack the reasons I made this play. I believed in the moment it was the right play. But why did I think that? It might be partially because I've tried lots of other types of plays in tournaments recently. Mostly the plays where I have good hands and put in lots of money, or where I have bad hands and I fold. Those plays have not worked. So here I was, trying something else. I don't think this play was a disaster, and I weirdly felt kind of reassured by the result, which was that my opponent tanked and said something like, uh, I just don't know if I can fold this, and finally called with bottom set, which of course is an easy call. So, whatever, I got a little out of line, and it didn't work out. But you can see how lost inside my head I am with this stuff. I'm not acting confidently, I'm worrying about bad luck, and I'm questioning myself. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, I haven't had much success in tournaments recently. 
I played thousands of small stakes online tournaments from about 2009 to 2013 and did well in them. And I played very small local tournaments for a few years after that and did well there too. But since I began focusing on cash games in 2015, I haven't had much luck in the few tournaments I've played. And I think those poor results are partially just the residue of small sample size, but that there may be other things going on as well. And what I worry about the most is that I don't know exactly how important any of those factors are. I think it was Doug Polk who said that if you care about justice in poker, tournaments aren't for you. Whatever edge you have, especially in live tournaments, can take longer than a lifetime to realize. So whatever, Charlie, your last 40 or so tournament buy-ins haven't gone well, it means nothing, and I know that, and I'm not asking for sympathy or anything like that, but I do want to describe what this run feels like. And what bothers me most here is not knowing to what extent this is my own fault. Bad luck in poker, or what feels like bad luck in poker, has a way of feeling like it's piling up on you. Usually this is just because you aren't as good as you think you are, and because randomness doesn't actually feel random when you're in the middle of it. And also in tournaments, it's because it genuinely is rare to cash or run deep. But sometimes what appears to be bad luck is happening to you because your strategy isn't good, or you haven't studied enough to keep up, or because you've adjusted your strategy in reaction to your recent struggles, and you've become worse as a result. Or maybe, in my case, I can't just copy-paste my cash game strategy, which I know is good, into a live tournament environment that involves a very different player pool, plus stack size and ICM dynamics. In tournament poker, you're mostly playing with much shorter stacks than you do in cash games, and your chips can't be directly converted to dollars which has huge implications for how you're supposed to play. There's this long-standing idea in poker that if you're a good cash player, you can just parachute into a tournament with a good structure and print money. These past few years have made me wonder how true that still is. If you're a good cash game player, there does seem to be a lot of opportunity in tournaments, but a lot of the real punting you see in them seems to take place in the early levels, when doubling up only increases the dollar value of your stack a modest amount. Later on, recreational players tend to stop gambling so hard, and by then the cash game player is deep in this unfamiliar maze of small stack sizes and prize pool incentives. A couple years ago, appearing on Joey Ingram's podcast, Mike McDonald described this phenomenon as a major reason cash game players overestimate their edge in tournaments, and that rings true to me. So what bothers me is that I don't really know what I don't know. I don't like running bad, but I can handle it in isolation. What I really don't like is not knowing where I stand. I feel insecure, and I feel like I might be wasting money and time. It's not a good feeling, but it is one I've had before. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, I didn't have an easy time in cash games for the first year or so after I moved to LA. I ran very poorly, and I made that worse by calling in spots I shouldn't have, not understanding that just because LA recreational players are more aggressive than they are elsewhere, that doesn't mean they're likely to be bluffing when they go all in on the river. That period of time messed with me. I couldn't figure out what was bad luck and what I was doing wrong. And I really wanted to know because I had just moved to Los Angeles and I wasn't sure how sustainable playing poker for a living was going to be for me in the long term. A couple times I remember making note of a date and giving myself a year to figure out poker. And if I couldn't do it to my satisfaction, I'd make other plans. 
Eventually, I stopped calling people so much and everything sorted itself out. It's been a few years since then, and stretches of negative variance hurt a lot less than they once did, because I now have a long track record that tells me I can make it in LA. But take me out of cash games and put me into tournaments, and suddenly I don't have that track record. I'm back to where I was years ago, where I was slogging through as a cash game pro and wondering what was bad luck and what I could do differently. And other than just building up the sample size that proves you have a win rate or don't, and in live tournaments, that's not easy, especially if you're not playing them full time. There's no easy way out of this mind puzzle. Convincing yourself that you're bad at something that you're not, in fact, bad at, and just quitting seems like wasting an opportunity, like leaving money on the table. But insisting you're good at something in the face of mounting evidence that you're not, especially when that evidence comes in the form of wasted money and wasted time, seems crazy and self-destructive. So which is it? I don't know and the uncertainty is what's difficult. I'm willing to admit I'm bad at something and just not do it anymore, if in fact that's true. But I don't know if it is. I don't know to what extent other players feel like this, but the feeling to me would be acute if I were exclusively a tournament player or a high-stakes cash player, where I'd be subjecting myself to downswings that might last months or even years. I don't know how you maintain the necessary confidence to keep going if you've been losing for a year. Maybe that reflects a degree of mental weakness on my part, although again, I'd argue that having that confidence, if it's not warranted, is at least as big a problem. Now, the one thing that's really different here about my current conundrum from the one I faced early in my LA cash game career is that cash games, where I am pretty confident in my abilities, are the main source of my income. If I blow through 10 or 15 tournament buy-ins a year and lose, it's not that big a deal. So when I'm not playing tournaments, this stuff doesn't bother me much. When I'm playing them, though, I'm not having that great a time. A friend recently told me that maybe the solution is to either take tournaments a lot more seriously or a lot less seriously, which seems like good advice. Wherever I land, though, I'll probably continue to play at least a few of them. As I've said before, tournaments are tantalizing, a potential shortcut to the money I'll need to retire. So I'll continue to take shots here and there, and hopefully someday, my number will be on the ping pong ball. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.